0: Hey, Joey Baseballs, how you doing, man? Hey, not for nothing, I'm ready the Yankees, though. Now oh, forget
1: about it. how you doing? Good morning, and welcome to episode 400 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined, as always, by Sam Miller. Today, we continue our season preview series, Later in the show, Nick Wheatley-Schaller will talk to Daniel Barbarisi, the Yankees beat writer for The Wall Street Journal. And right now, we will talk to Emma Spann, a senior editor from Sports on Earth, who wrote the Mets chapter for the Baseball Prospectus Annual, which made her the logical choice uh, for, the, for the Yankees season preview podcast, because those are basically the same same things, right? More or less, Mets, Yankees.
2: Very similar. No no differences at all, really.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think one of our first podcasts of this offseason, Sam and I talked about what the Yankees would do or what they should do or what they possibly could do to be competitive in 2014. And my recommendation was that they sign all the good players. And mm-hmm. then we talked a bit about whether they would actually adhere to the the fabled $189 million luxury tax revenue uh, spending limit. And uh, as it turns out, we more or less wasted our time every time we ever talked about that. Um, mm-hmm. And you wrote about that after they, I guess, after they officially went over. Um, so what what is the takeaway from the whole 189 thing? Were we silly to ever talk about it?
2: Well, I mean, they kept talking about it. So it wasn't like we, you know, got it out of nowhere. I'm mostly just mad that we spent, like, a whole year talking about tax issues. <laughs> <laughs> and we could have been talking about literally anything else. Um, no, I think, you know, a lot of fans were always very skeptical about whether they would stick to that. Cause it's just it not uh, the Yankees' way. If, you know, if there's the Cardinal way, like, the Yankee way would just be, like, spend all the money on everything. Um but it did seem like a reasonable thing for them to want to try to do. Uh, but yeah, that was all, you know, I think eventually they came to the realization that they had not sufficiently prepared for that enough in advance to be able to field a competitive team on that budget. And I think they're still facing an uphill battle this season, but at least, yeah, they did in fact basically buy most of the good players that were available this offseason.
1: And yet they they didn't buy all of them. They could have bought a few more if they really wanted to, which does that suggest that there is some sort of limit? Because when they when they spent all that money on Tanaka, Sam and I said, well, the only logical thing for them to do now is sign Urban Santana and sign Stephen Drew and sign anyone else who's left who would still make them better. And the fact that they didn't do that presumably suggests that there is some sort of limit somewhere.
2: Yeah, there there is some limit. It's you know the, the younger Steinbrenners are are not George. I think they they do want to keep things under control. The thing that really surprised me was that they were willing to spend all this money, but they weren't willing to spend it on Robinson Cano, uh, who was you know unquestionably the best free agent of the off season, um, and they they just didn't seem to you know want him that much. They they made him an offer that was hugely below what he ended up getting, and never really countered or. Um, you know, pursued him very hard. I think that was, yeah, you know, that was that was the thing that surprised me was that out of all the money they spent you know, this offseason, they they didn't uh, they didn't try to re-sign him.
1: Yeah. Did you have any any theories for why that was? Was it just the the, the sour taste of the 10-year contract for A Rod or whoever else uh, prevented them from giving out another one, or was it specific to Cano?
2: I'm sh- I'm sure that was part of it, and that may end up being like a wise choice, but I also think. That to a certain, at least some members of that of the organization kind of bought into the idea that he, you know, didn't didn't always run it out that he was somehow would would dog certain plays. I my impression is that like in certain parts of of the Yankees organization that actually carried a certain amount of weight, which I find kind of surprising. But um, like I don't think that necessarily Cashman or Girardi thought that, but there does seem to be some of that sentiment there. Uh, I think that was that may have been at least one reason. I do think. If that is the case, they may have ended up saving themselves anyway cuz you know that in in 9 years I'm sure they're going to be happy that they're not paying Cano, you know, 20 million whatever dollars. But so still like, you know, they he was eat by, by like by light years their best hitter. So it's going to be kind of weird to watch the team without him.
3: Um, you both know the details of their finances a lot better than I do. So uh, forgive me, I'm going to say some things that might be really, really dumb or ask questions that might be really dumb. But so basically the whole point of getting under the luxury tax threshold is that um, if they're over it uh, year after year after year, they're essentially spending, you know, like if they sign a guy now for $10 million, they're basically paying him like $20 million or whatever because of all the taxes involved, right? And so it's it's a really inefficient way to spend a dollar, and if they had gotten under for a year, they would have um, been able to, you know, save a lot more money than just the guys they weren't signing. They would have, you know, signed a lot, right? So, so that's all well and good, but then we tell ourselves, oh well, they're the Yankees; they don't care about money. So, oh, I guess why why bother with all of that cost cutting? Just go ahead and spend all the money. This is the thought process that I imagine everybody is going through. Um, but then here we talk about Cano and we talk about not signing Santana and we acknowledge that they do have limits. And if their limits seem to be at a place right now that doesn't allow them to be a very great team, um, why didn't they stay under 189? I mean, it, it really feels like this maybe was a miscalculation, right? I mean, doesn't?
2: I, no, I disagree there. Actually, I mean, I do okay, think from a, Thank you. From, a, from a purely financial standpoint, yes, like. If they had been under this one year, then they would have saved a lot of money down the road. But meanwhile, I think they really do risk alienating some of their fans. Attendance was down last year. I can't remember exactly how much, but like a significant amount. And I think if the, if they had continued to kind of pursue, you know, if they had been at the, at last year's level again, it would have gone down further. Which you know, which actually loses them for you know, loses them a fair amount of money um, just from tickets and merchandise and all that stuff. I think at a certain point. I mean, maybe in terms of strictly dollars, it might have saved them, but I think in the long run, it would have hurt them with, with, you know, a fan base that was, you know, Yankee Stadium is already, like, it's a pain to go to Yankee Stadium, and I I say it as, you know, I've been going to Yankees games for most of my life, but it's expensive, it's kind of built for these, like, luxury seats, it's just, like, generally a hassle, and I still like going to games, but if you're gonna run Jason Nix out there every day, no offense to Jason Nicks, who I think is a nice guy, but uh, you know, you're at some point you do risk, I think you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face, kind of a thing.
3: Yeah, and from from where I am, it's actually really hard to get to the stadium too. It takes uh, days to get there. So, uh, but um, but they do have to win in order to keep those fans coming. I mean, the Jason Nix obviously doesn't draw fans, but um, they do have to sort of continually win to not see their attendance drop and to get the playoff revenue that uh, keeps them in the black each year. And so is there like a three or five year plan that breaks this cycle? Because it feels like all they're doing is just digging an even deeper hole for three years from now that they might not be able to get out of. So isn't this day of reckoning coming eventually? Or is this something that writers have been saying is coming for like 10 years and has never really come?
2: I mean, in some sense, the reckoning already came. I mean, they—you know— for years, everyone's been saying they had, oh, the team is too old; they're not going to be able to win. And they kept winning anyway. And last year, the team was too old, and they couldn't win. Um, and to a certain extent, that did catch up with them. But I don't think financially, I don't see why it would ever catch up with them. I mean, they have an enormous income stream, as far as you know, both both the YES Network and and being in New York, and other things. So I don't, I don't think that they'll ever have to stop you know, taking advantage of the free agent market. At the same time, as we know, the free agent market isn't what it used to be. Um, more and more teams locking up their best players at a younger and younger age. I mean, they really do need to fix their farm system. There's basically no way around that.
3: I mean, it's an enormous revenue stream, but it, it feels like it's a revenue stream that they are bumping right up to the edge of right now. Otherwise, they would have signed... I mean, I'm looking at their at their depth chart, and there's a guy on there who's actually pretty high on their depth chart named c cabral which is not a thing i've heard of and he's like he's in a usable spot in the depth chart he's the fourth name listed in the bullpen and it, i mean it feels like it's it's absolutely it's absolutely true that the yankees have an enormous revenue stream and they can do things that no other team can do but like there were a lot of relievers out there who probably could have done better than caesar cabral uh, could do um but you know they've they have bumped up against the ceiling, and, and it feels like, like, eventually, I mean, they, they just signed all these guys for a team that doesn't look likely to make the playoffs this year, so yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just concern trolling here, but it feels kind of dangerous.
2: I think dangerous is putting it strongly. I mean, the Yankees are in no danger of, like, hitting serious financial straits, as far as I know, but I do think, you know, eventually, there are problems that you can't fix on the free agent market. And their farm system is, it's not terrible, but it's not, you know, it's been a really long time since they produced a very good position player. I mean, I think Brett Gardner may be the last one, and that's obviously not something they can sustain forever.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that because their, their system ranked 23rd in, in Jason Parks's recent organizational wow. rankings at BP, and then he also did a, a 25 and under talent ranking and they ranked 28th and would have been dead last if not for Tanaka. So
2: maybe, maybe they are terrible,
1: pretty terrible. So is that how much of that is just the way that they do business and how much of it is them not, you know, not following the plan well or, or not executing it. Well, could the Yankees conceivably be the team that spends hundreds of millions of dollars in an off season and signs qualified offer free agents and yet also have, an upper-tier farm system, or is that just completely unrealistic?
2: It's increasingly unrealistic. I mean, they keep you know they they, they they their draft position is not great, and then when they have been able to draft, they haven't made great choices. The combination, and there's some luck in there too. I mean, you know, you guys know as well as anyone when you're with, with prospects at that point, it's it's a crapshoot to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, no, I do think that they're. I don't think it's it's not impossible to. To, you know hundred million dollars in draft well but it's hard and they're they haven't been able to do it for a while I think that's probably the thing that they most you know the, the most glaring hole right now as far as their their long-term strategy
1: mm-hmm. uh, so have you been following you know when you when you follow the Yankees you follow more beat writers than any other team has and you inevitably see seven tweets in a row in your timeline uh, all about the same same person being scratched from the lineup that day Uh, or you see 800 Jeter pictures and you hear about how he's running well uh, or maybe you hear about CC Sabathia's velocity or his weight Um, has there been anything that struck you as particularly encouraging or discouraging about some of the guys that the Yankees are are counting on to come back from having been hurt last year
2: uh, I'm not super encouraged. <laughs> I feel like, there, you know, I I would love for Jeter to have a great last season, but I feel like that's a real long shot just at his age and with the injury he's coming off of and his position. since he still isn't giving up. I have no idea what to expect from Teixeira, and I think they're they they are not rich in first base options. If uh, if if he can't if he can't play, I think Kelly Johnson might be the next guy in line and then they had up on the Soriano taking grounders at first um I I think they're they're certainly better than they were going into the off season they there's I think the team will be totally watchable this year I think I don't think they'll be terrible um but they're still relying on a lot of older players Sabathia again I would love to see him have a bounce back year because it's a fun guy to watch when he's doing well but um you know he's concerned about the velocity drop and about his age. And I think he'll be better than last year, but I don't know if he'll be like he used to be. is um, a great pitcher, but he is, I think, 39. So there's, I mean, they're definitely, uh, you know, I, I think they're going to be fun to watch this year, but it, there's a lot of injury risk with that team this year.
3: What is, uh, what is Itro's role on this team? Or, or I guess I, I know what his role is, but <laughs> like, what is, what is his year going to look like? What, what can we, Expect to see, and because I'm, I'm curious. He's saying that he wants to keep playing even after this year, um, but you know, he's never not been a full time player. And I'm wondering like, at this point what he's really getting out of this experience.
2: Yeah, I don't know. They, they, I feel like maybe there was like a new rule in the CBA that awarded you wins for like the most outfielders that you had because the Yankees just kept signing outfielders <laughs> and signing them and signing them. I, I, I loved watching Ichiro play, but I can't. I mean, he was not good last year. He's another year older. He, there's not a real obvious place for him. I don't know that he's going to be a great pinch hitter. It's kind of, it's, it's, it would be tough to watch him sort of languish on the bench, and I kind of wondered if he was a trade candidate, but it doesn't seem to be happening. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's like weird to think of him as maybe a pinch runner, but I could actually imagine that happening.
1: And this is a contract year for Brian Cashman, um, do you think that, that this marriage between him and the Yankees, which I guess this is now his 17th season, has it, uh, is there too much inertia or too much history between these two teams for him to go somewhere else? Or are we finally going to see small market Cashman going somewhere and <laughs> trying to win with a with a small budget? And would he even yeah. be good at that?
2: I'm a little worried about Brian Cashman. I feel like once <laughs> you start uh, rappelling down the sides of buildings, especially <laughs> as an elf, and then parachuting out of airplanes and breaking your leg like you're, that's probably a sign that you're ready for a new challenge. Um, Not to try to psychoanalyze him too much or anything, but uh, he's been kind of giving off a a sick of it all vibe for a while. Maybe that's not how he feels, but um, I don't really see him going to a small market team. I can't imagine him going and collecting a a big paycheck to be somebody's like special advisor um, and like healing his many ulcers. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I I think I don't think that, I think the job is probably his if he wants it, but I don't know that he wants it. That could be wrong, though. I that's not any inside information. It's just his general like aura of unhappiness.
1: Is there any Yankees legend farewell fatigue after the the season long Rivera tour last year, or is this gonna be fun? I mean, you're someone who has to occasionally you know, go to the stadium and cover events like this. I'm yeah. sure you'll be at, you know, Cheater's last game or whatever momentous moments there are at the end of the season. Um, are we to the point now where we've seen enough of these choreographed moments that it's no longer special or uh, am I just kind of being a Scrooge asking well, that?
2: I think if you're not a Yankees fan, there's definitely like lots of fatigue. But if you're a Yankees fan and I don't, I mean, I think you can't really begrudge Cheater his, his turn. I mean, that's the thing for me too. He's really the last of the players that I grew up watching, just as a fan and not as a writer. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like when he's gone, like it's definitely the end of an era. But I think a lot of fans who you know don't have to go and listen to canned quotes probably feel the same way. Um, I think you know for anyone who's not a Yankees fan, the the Jeter tour is going to be like fairly unbearable. Um, but but again, but for you know the target audience is is New Yorkers, and I think you kind of. You can't really – I mean, I was surprised that he announced before the season because I always thought that he would, like, announce, you know, before, like, the last week or something Yeah. and then just say goodbye. But I think he's, you know, he's trying to stop and smell the roses more and take it all in, and I, you know, can't really begrudge him that. He's definitely earned it.
1: I kind of wonder whether there is any pressure on a retiring legend like that to announce before the season, you know, like um, – I think when Mickey Mantle retired his final season, he wanted to do one of those, you know, at the end of the year, just kind of go out quietly. Uh, and then they, they asked him to delay the announcement until the following spring so they could sell some season tickets from people who wanted to see Mickey Mantle play. Um, right. So, I, I, I mean, you'd have to think there's a huge financial incentive for players like Rivera and Jeter to do it this way, especially when you don't have... A powerhouse team that's going to win a hundred games, you can count on lots of people coming just for just for Jeter.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, but I also think that you know Jeter's a guy who can kind of write his own ticket in that regard. If he wanted to do it a certain way, he could, you know. He, I, but yeah, I do think it'll be a boon to you know the teams that he visits for the last time, and definitely for the Yankees. I mean, the last month of the season, even if they're out of the playoff race. I would think they'll have a pretty good you know have pretty decent attendance if people come to say goodbye.
3: so uh, Ben and I disagree about Jeter's prospects this year i'm I'm fairly optimistic that he'll actually have a, a decent year and bounce back. but um it's certainly possible that he won't that it could get very ugly. is there is there any any level of of badness that he could reach that would make his um, his uh, playing time controversial, or is is it? a certainty that, you know, as long as he's healthy, no matter what he does, uh, Yankees fans will be happy to see him out there, um, even, you know, <clears throat> in the last game of the season, trailing, you know, the Red Sox by one game.
2: No, I, I think there there are limits. I mean, I, especially at shortstop. I mean, at a certain point, you know, he I, I'm just not sure he's going to be able to play shortstop. If he can, they'll keep running him out there. But I, I do think he may end up playing. You know, I think they're going to try just for his own health to limit his playing time. I think he could turn into a part-time player this year. Uh, it's, I think that's totally possible. I mean, it would—you know—it's—it's it's awkward. He doesn't—he doesn't want to give up shortstop, but I certain—you know—they have Brendan Ryan there. I mean, the difference between forty-year-old injured Derek Jeter and Brendan Ryan is pretty sizable. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, so so give us a prediction. Give us a win total and a finish.
2: For the Yankees. Uh mm-hmm. I think they'll be over 500. I think maybe they win like 85 games hmm. and, and miss the playoffs by, you know, five games or so. Um, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they, I wouldn't be shocked either way. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if they pulled one out and and overperformed. And I, and I wouldn't be shocked if it all kind of fell down around their heads either.
1: Can you give us a, a bad movie recommendation to end on a high note? I saw oh, you.
2: Man, we watched, we I watched saw the you. Last night.
1: I know. I saw you tweeting about <laughs> Double Team, which is an amazing movie. Uh, yeah, and I wonder Double what's Team. next on your queue. Uh,
2: Double Team is, is the most 1997 movie ever that has uh, Jean Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman as a in, flamboyant international arms dealer, according to the uh, <laughs> the, the, the movie the DVD box. Um, and it does at one point feature a scene where. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman on a motorcycle fight Mickey Rourke and a Bengal tiger mm-hmm. in the Roman Coliseum with a baby bassinet uh, <laughs> with his with the uh, Van Damme's son in it. So that was, I would say that was definitely worth the price of admission.
1: <laughs> I would agree. Uh, okay, well thank you. The, um, even even though you were not particularly optimistic about the Yankees, the good news is that the the champion suite section has side tables now this year. Uh, Wow. So
2: that that changes everything. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and revise my
1: prediction now. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Emma.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, So you can follow Emma at Emma Span. You can read her work at Sports on Earth. Uh, Please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index, use the coupon code BP to get a $6 discount on a one-year subscription, And now Nick Wheatley-Schaller will talk to Daniel Barbarisi.
0: Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with Daniel Barbarisi from the Wall Street Journal. How's it going? Good, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So the Yankees surprised nobody this offseason with their big spending. They added Brian McCann, Jacoby Ellsbury, Carlos Beltran to the lineup, um and then also of course Masahiro Tanaka to the rotation. Out of those three position players, uh, who do they need the most out of in twenty
4: fourteen? I think McCann is the key to so many things for them. You know, obviously you know kind of what you're gonna get offensively from him. He's a consistent twenty homer guy, and I think in this park, he can be a thirty homer guy even his career. But you know, the Yankees are a team that really values catcher defense and they think that McCann has been kind of underrated defensively, maybe because he's a guy who everyone knows for his bat. But, uh, you know, they, they see his pitch framing skills, his pitch calling skills, and his staff leadership skills as exemplary. You know, he doesn't have a great honor in terms of throwing guys out, but the way they look at it, the other things the other things he brings defensively are really important and really underrated, and he's a guy who's going to solidify the middle of that lineup. And you get a catcher hitting in the middle of that lineup the way that Hori Panda used to do. That does a lot for that team. The guy they really thought was the perfect fit for them and the guy that they think can take them where they want to
0: go. They have let Russell Martin go after last year. He signed with Pittsburgh and then had an- had another good year with them. That was kind of surprising to see them lose a free agent. Um, was there any reasoning last year behind them letting Russell Martin go? It ended up working out pretty well as so they got a better player in McCann.
4: Yeah, I think that was a situation that kind of got away from them. They had offered Martin an extension during the season, which is actually opposed to what their usual policy is. He was a player they really coveted. In that they, you know, they were willing to go outside with their usual way of doing business was to keep him. Uh, he didn't want to do that during the season, so he wanted to wait for free agency. And then the Yankees ended up in a situation where I think there were some front office issues, and there were not approvals to make legitimate offers at the time when Martin was ready to sign. Hmm. So Pittsburgh was there with a regular offer for him. He went to Pittsburgh. The Yankees weren't fully ready to commit money yet because again, I think it was something of an internal issue, and Martin slipped away. But that was a player they really wanted. That was a guy who was really important to them. He was a great fit for them. He would have come a lot cheaper than McCann even if he doesn't provide yeah. the exact same uh, production. He's still a really darn good catcher, obviously, on a lot of levels. So I think that was a situation where they let events get a little away from them, and they knew that they had let something slip there. So, uh, you know, again, talking earlier about how much they do value a good catcher, I think Martin gave them a lot of the things they needed, and You know, he would still be here if not for that. Um, But, you know, yeah, it did end up okay in the end for them, even if they had to pay uh, quite a high price to get it done.
0: Despite the Yankees signing Jacoby Ellsbury to a long-term deal to play center field, Brett Gardner signed a four-year extension last month. Uh, Was this a surprising move for the Yankees to make? Gardner's been pretty excellent at times, but the Yankees aren't exactly known for trying to reduce reduce their financial risk through uh, extensions.
4: Yeah, I was very surprised but I think uh certainly I and I think a lot of other people thought that as soon as Ellsbury was on board, this was Gardner's last year. Mm-hmm. I didn't think they were gonna trade him this winter as a lot of other people did, but I thought he was gonna walk after this year. I thought he was gonna get a pretty good deal in free agency after this year. You know, he's a very good defensive center fielder. He's obviously a, a smart and strong base dealer and you know, he's an on base guy. He he gets there, you know, he's not a really guy that's for average, but he gets on base enough and he makes the most of those opportunities. So I thought you know he was going to go to some other team, be their center fielder for the next five years, but he wanted to stay here. He was willing to take a pretty decent deal to do so. Um, it's funny. I mean, it's one of those deals where you look at it, and Gardner did okay for himself. He probably could have gotten more on the open market, but the real issue was that you know you look at the Ellsbury deal compared to that. Gardner and Ellsbury are not over their careers terribly different yeah, players. They're really so, not. You know, Ellsbury. Yeah. Ellsbury had that fantastic season in 2011, which was a transcendent year. But other than that, they've been pretty similar players. And Ellsbury's making $100 million more <laughs> over a, you know, a very similar period of years. So uh, I think the Gardner deal was a really good signing for them. You know That left field and center field and Yankee Stadium played really big. And uh, I think it's good for them to keep those guys there. But it does kind of show, you when you look at the Ellsbury contract, hey, wait, if you could get Brett Gardner for this, wow, you, know, you gave a lot of money to Jacoby
0: Ellsbury. It was kind of interesting to see that Gardner decided to sign that extension. Obviously, it gives him a little bit more financial stability, but the idea that he would be w- willing to play second fiddle to Ellsbury um, and move to left for what should be the, the, the rest of that, that contract, um, do, do you think he likes p- playing out in left field, or um, what uh, impacted his decision?
4: I think he likes playing for the Yankees more than yeah. anything else, really. I mean, I think he would like to be a center fielder in a perfect world, but he knows that he's a valued part of a team that he really enjoys. He loves the fit of it. You know, talking to him before and after this, I and mean, he he stressed that everyone he's talked to who comes to the Yankees and everyone he's talked to who leaves the Yankees said that they didn't feel the same sense of importance on other teams and the, the sense that like everything that there was so much that mattered to every game. And he likes that high stakes thing. I think he really loved the idea of being a homegrown guy who stays around. You know, I would not be surprised to see him finish his career with this contract. So, you know, the idea of being a guy who spends his entire career in one uniform I know is attractive to him. And, you know, I think he's the guy who said, look, he could have gotten a little bit more money somewhere else, and maybe he could have played center field somewhere else. But he had enough money anyway, and these are his words. But And, you know, center field and left field are okay. You have a, a guy who's also an elite defender next to you. I don't think he feels like he's taking a back seat to somebody who stinks. I think he thinks, that, you know, Ellsbury is an excellent center fielder. And the two of them can actually do some very good things together. So I think Gardner, you know, he's always been a real team first guy. He's always been a guy who does look at the bigger picture. And, you know, it certainly seems like he did that here. So yeah, he'll sacrifice something. And certainly I think for this much of this year, he's probably not going to be hitting at the top of the lineup. But once Derek Jeter retires, chances are it's going to be, you know, some combination of Ellsbury and Gardner at the front of that lineup. So, you know, he's going to have to take a little bit of a backseat in some things, but I think he saw the other positives to it as outweighing us.
0: So they have Gardner and Ellsbury in left and center, and then uh, Beltran should be playing right field and then Soriano at D h um, that leaves Ichiro sort of out of the starting lineup he played 150, 150 games last year which was remarkably the second lowest total of his thirteen year career uh, what's his role going to be like this year
4: well that's
0: uh, in a you know an evolving process
4: I mm-hmm. guess uh, he doesn't have much of a role right now I mean Ichiro is obviously you know not what he used to be and He's a player who does have some attributes still. You know, he's a smart player. He's still a good defender in the corners. Um, he's a you know, he's a good outfielder, he's a good base runner. If you do need a single in a certain situation, he is a guy who can get you that, but you know, he's not getting on base at the same level he used to. You know, that, that doubles power, that doubles ability that used to be there is not there in the same way. He's just a guy without a role on a team with a lot of pretty good outfielders. So I really think that if there's a situation where another team loses a guy to injury, and they need a guy, the Yankees will be very, very quick to start dialogue uh, for Ichiro. Because, you know, they respect Ichiro. They respect what he's done here, what he came here for, you know, and what he has given them to some extent. And they want him to have a role somewhere. He doesn't want to be essentially a fifth outfielder, even if I think he would accept somewhat of a backup role, and he doesn't want to be fully marginalized. So I think it's the kind of situation where if he does stay on this team and nobody gets hurt, there's really not much of a role for him. So He's essentially waiting on injury either in the Yankee ranks or on some other team, and I think that's the kind of situation that will repel him to at least a fourth outfielder's job somewhere. Mm-hmm. If the situation stands as it is now, I can't really see him having much of a role on the Yankees.
0: The Yankees have pretty significant holes at second and third base. They're looking at playing some combination of Brian Roberts, Scott Sizemore, Kelly Johnson, Eduardo Nunez, um, losing Arod to suspension, obviously, and then know to free agency, make, made a big dent in those two spots. Do you think they might try to uh, improve that those two positions um, by trading someone like Ichiro? I mean, I think if they thought they could get return there, they would do that. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if Ichiro is going to bring
4: back a piece that is going to be significantly better than the guys they have. Um, you know, someone like Gardner would have when there were some of those talks going on, yeah. but I don't think yeah. you know, that's obviously not on the table anymore. So... Um, I, I just don't see that as the kind of thing that's going to bring that return um yeah, I mean I think it's it's funny. house Steinberger who can be very frank when he wants to be he said look we're not going to be perfect everywhere when addressing mm-hmm. the second and third base situations but I actually think that Kelly Johnson is a pretty good fit there um you know I think he's getting a little bit underrated in terms of what he's going to give them you know he's 250 you know these little old numbers here uh, at uh, 15 and, you know, 75, if you want to go it that way, pretty consistently through the course of his career. He gets on base, he draws his walks, you know, he, he's a guy, I think, who knows what he's doing. And I think it's, a, you know, the strong side of the platoon there can do pretty well. Now, if you pair him with a guy like Sizemore, if Sizemore is healthy enough to do it, maybe you have something there. Sizemore is really something of a wild card right now because he's trying to both to make the team and prove that He's over his knee injury, and I don't think he is fully 100% over that knee, or these two years of two straight ACL injuries yet. But um, third base, I really don't think is somewhat as much of a concern as second base, where I think, you know, Brian Roberts is obviously a guy who's had very good years in his career, but he's pretty far removed from those. He's had a a very hard time staying on the field, and the options there behind him are not very significant. So, you know, I'm more worried about the second base situation than I would be about the third base situation. Um, but, you know, again, like Alsa, they're actually perfect everywhere.
0: So they definitely struggled with injuries last year. One of the big ones was Mark Teixeira. His season ended in June when he had surgery on his wrist. Um, he had had problems with that wrist since the spring, missed some time early in the season, and then got injured after he re-injured it after he came back. Um, he's continued to be an above-average fielder at first base, but his bat hasn't really been elite since the Yankees' 2009 championship year. Since twenty ten he's had a two fifty batting average on balls in play, which is the second worst in the majors, and down from three eighteen from the three years before that. Um so how good can he be at the plate if he, if that wrist is really healthy?
4: If the wrist is healthy, I think he can be essentially an approximation of what he was in two thousand ten, you know, which is a guy who's right, the average is in the two fifty to two seventy range, but he's always been very good with drawing walks, good with on base ability. The power's there, you know, I don't see him as a forty homer guy anymore, but I don't see why he can't hit 30 if that wrist is okay, which is a very, very big concern. You know, Jose Batista had a very similar situation to Shira in that he you know, tried to play through the injury, eventually had surgery, and he came back and he was not the Batista that he was in the previous two seasons. You know, or he was a 50-hour monster. So uh, I think Shira can have a similar trajectory there where he can come back pretty quickly to being... Probably close to what he is or what he was in those recent seasons, but you know he has said to on several occasions he doesn't think he's going to be fully right till about June. So it's a funny thing because he's always been a slow a slow starter to begin with. Yeah. So if he gets up to a slow start in April this year, well, you know we're going to be asking, oh wait, is this because Texas is always a slow starter, or is it because the wrist is not fully there? So it's one of the things I think only time is going to tell on him. He's obviously going to provide you very good defense either way. He's going to draw his walks. He's going to do lots of stuff. And I think the power is there. But, you know, you mentioned his bad experience well of in play. I, I don't think very many players have been hurt by the uh, increase in shifting throughout the mm. league, as Tashera has. Yeah, so many yeah. teams the at least very aggressive in shifting. Baltimore, Toronto, Boston, all super aggressive shifting teams. Obviously, Joe Madden is playing guys all over the place. And with all the spray charts now, Texas has been really, really hurt by that because he's a guy who did not alter his swing, did not alter where he's hitting the ball, just does what he does. And now those balls that were finding holes five years ago are not finding holes anymore because there are guys in those holes. So I think that's really been a big difference in dropping his average over the years. So, you know, I think he is a smart guy and he's recognized this. So he's tried to focus on the things he does well, which is hitting for power, um, you know, on base ability and playing defense. And I think he can still provide those things, Provided the the list allows him to do so, and I think he's still going to have some issues with that, most likely in the April and May part of the year.
0: Who would step into the first base spot if he gets injured or misses any sort of time?
4: Uh, essentially, right now it's the ubiquitous Kelly Johnson who yeah. is,
0: in theory, starting third baseman, the backup
4: second baseman, and the backup first baseman. So that's a little bit uh, stretched thin right there. I think you know there are other options. You know, there, none of them are really named guys whatsoever. There's a guy in camp. Uh, Russ Kanzler's had a little bit of big league time for the last couple of years. He's got, you know, major league power, but, you know, he is certainly not proven to be a big league regular at any point. Uh, a couple other, you know, lesser options in there as well. But, uh, you know, right now it's just a business they don't have a lot of depth at. So yeah. they're kind of just putting most of the eggs in one basket and saying, okay, Mark Teixeira, hopefully you're good, let's go.
0: Over on the pitching side, the most exciting thing the Yankees have going for them is Tanaka. He made his first spring training appearance this week. He struck out three Phillies batters in over just over two innings, or I think just two innings. Um, how much more do we know about him as a pitcher that, since he's arrived uh, in America?
4: Uh, actually, a lot. I feel like I mean, and a lot of it is really just on the makeup side of things. I've been, you mm-hmm. know, you don't know whether somebody has that level of pressure and that level of expectations, that level of attention on them, how they're going to handle that, you know, and. I've been tremendously impressed with how Tanaka has faced all of these situations. You know, where, I mean, the the pack of people waiting on and documenting his every move, uh, you know, on on the sides of two oceans is tremendous and huge and and very, I would think, intimidating. And he seems completely unfazed by the whole thing. You know, the idea that there is such focus on him. You know, his first appearance, which is the middle of a spring training game, was televised on three major Japanese (laughs) networks at 3 a.m. And it got good ratings. Mm. So, I mean, you know, people really, really care about what's going on with him. And that doesn't seem to bother him one bit. You know, he wanted the spotlight. He wanted to come to New York because he wanted it all on him. And I've really been very impressed with his makeup thus far. Now, of course, his makeup doesn't matter if he can't pitch. So that two-inning stint thought was very impressive. I mean, you he really – he was up to 94 already on his first spring appearance. You know what I mean? Not just touching 94, he was sitting at 93, 94 when he needed to be, no problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his breaking stuff was very impressive. He threw seven pitches, all of which he's going to use in a regular game. But, you know, there's a changeup that he hasn't really brought out a lot that he brought in there. Uh, He showed off that splitter a couple times, you know, unleashing one really nasty one uh, to Ben Revere, uh, where Revere just had no chance at it. Just a really strong pitch. And this is a guy who this is on his first appearance of spring training. So... You know, you're not seeing a guy who's fully worked up or even close to it, but he was very impressive. And I think he understood specifically that this was an appearance where it was not just him getting his work in. It was not just a case of, hey, it's my first spring outing, no big deal. You know, he had to both come out and prove himself and also work on the things he needed to work on. So, uh, really, I think he's been very impressive, you know, stuff-wise, velocity-wise, power-wise but also even more than that in showing that he understands what he needs to do and what he needs to get here, what he was brought here to do, and that he's not phased or intimidated by any of it. So that's what I feel like I've learned about him in the last two to three weeks. Very impressive in that regard.
0: So you see Sabathio seen his velocity drop over the past few years and his performance has dec- declined along with it. He lost a bunch of weight this offseason. What else is he trying to do to turn things around? Yeah, I mean he is a
4: really vexing question. You know, he has to learn to pitch as a different pitcher. I was talking to Andy Pettit today, who went through very successfully that transition, you know, from a guy who was thrown in the low to mid nineties consistently to a guy who was getting away with 80, 89, but with movement and with location. And he said, look, you know, CC is going to have to learn to do that. And Pettit certainly believes that CC is the kind of guy who can figure that out. You know, a guy who's always had the command to, to understand and to exploit that kind of stuff. The guy who has always had the stuff, His breaking balls and his off speed to get away with things that other guys might not be able to. But, you know, as Beto was saying today, CeCe now has to really focus on that stuff. You know, he's got to make sure that he really sticks with things like his changeup when they're not working. You know, he's got to make sure that he's really precise with secondary stuff all the time. And that fastball has to be used not just to blow guys away like he used to use it, but to set up his other pitches and to really, you know, pitch sequence, that kind of stuff. So, Mm He has to learn to become a different pitcher, and I think the Yankees are confident that he can do that. And you know, to be honest about it, they're stuck with him even if he can't do that. So, you know, to them, he has to learn how to do it. But you know, he is definitely coming to camp very motivated. You know, the velocity was not there in his first spring outing. So, you know, it's what, I think he was eighty, eighty-nine. He may have touched ninety. He's probably going to tick up a few from there, of course. But this is not a ninety-five mile an hour CC Sabathia anymore. This is ninety-one, ninety-two. So he's got to be getting away and living on other things. So I think it's really a transition process for him, you know, this two-year period or so of figuring out whether this guy can become a different kind of pitcher. And you know, this is another one that's kind of like with Sarah, this is a truly only time will tell, and we're not going to really know in spring training. we got to really see this against true competition to really know.
0: Losing Mariano Rivera to retirement was definitely a big blow to the Yankees bullpen. Luckily, they have one of the best setup guys over the past few years, David Robertson, to fit, ready to fill that ready to fill that spot. Who are they looking to in order to fill the hole that Robertson leaves in the eighth inning?
4: Uh, that is unofficially Sean Kelly's job now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he came over from the Mariners last year. as really a kind of unknown guy, um, and he was he didn't pitch well at all in the, the start. He was essentially a mop up guy for the first month. So in April, I mean, he took some really ugly numbers against, the, I think it was a couple games in Cleveland where you know, they left him out there for a long time because he wasn't, he really hadn't pitched himself into a role in the bullpen yet. But if you look at his numbers after April and before September when uh, he was having some injury issues and had to work through those, he was really lights out from May, June, July, and August. You know, very, very, very good, and he really won Joe Girardi's trust. So now he's got to show that he can do that over a full season. Um, you know the Yankee bullpen. Even if you're, even if you're assuming that Kelly is going to be a good setup man or certainly a good enough setup man, um, they're pretty thin from that point on. You know mm-hmm. you've got Robertson in there, and I think he's, you know, he's obviously proven he can be an elite setup man, and I think he can probably be a pretty good closer too. Kelly, I'm a believer, but past that, you know, you have Preston Klabour, who did well enough as a rookie last year, but he's only got 50 innings in the majors. You have Chances are David Phelps and Adam Warren, who are going to be guys you know, who if they don't win the fifth starter spot, mm-hmm. they end up in the bullpen. You have uh, Matt Thornton, who at this point is really a lefty specialist, and is not really a guy you're going to want to use against to hitters of both sides, and you know, really not much beyond that. So then you're kind of hoping, okay, does a guy like Dylan Betances prove he can stick at the major league level? So. Other than Kelly and, uh, and Robertson, there's not a lot of proven major league arms in that bullpen. I think LeBron can do it, but he's not a proven guy. Uh, Thornton is, of course, I'm sorry, a proven major league arm, but he's really a role guy. So, you know, it's a bullpen that used to be very deep and is certainly not anymore, even if you do believe in those top guys. So I, I, was, I have been really surprised that that's one area where they didn't get one more kind of big arm in there. You know, when, when Benoit and Grant Balfour were out there in free agency, I am surprised the Yankees didn't go out and get one of those guys to pair them with Kelly in kind of that 7th, 8th inning area and then feel like you have three pretty good relievers you can count on in addition to Thornton as kind of that lefty specialist role. So I think the bullpen right now is definitely an area of the team that could use a jolt. You know, I mean, there's a guy like maybe Joel Hamrahan is a guy they take a chance on a little later in spring training. Um, they've certainly had scouts at other guys' performances, uh, you know, Ryan Matts and showcases, so that kind of stuff. Um, But right now, there's not a lot of proven arms in that bullpen, and I think that could definitely be kind of a a weak underbelly for this team.
0: So the Yankees spent a lot of money this offseason, and those uh, those additions can definitely help them this year, but they're such an old team that some injuries are inevitable. If they have another down year like they did last year, how would that impact the franchise?
4: Well, I mean, if you look at it, and we did a story about this a little while ago, if the Yankees miss the playoffs, it costs them something, and it depends how deep they go. But it can cost them anywhere between thirty and fifty million dollars in revenue. The Yankees mm-hmm. are built around making the playoffs. They don't have to make the World Series every year. They don't have to win the World Series every year, but they have to make the playoffs. You know, missing the playoffs two years in a row is a real problem for them structurally. I think they have a team that is a team that certainly is capable of making the playoffs. Obviously, a lot of things can happen. But, you know, they, this is a team that has a lot more talent than last year's squad. That team really overachieved, even get to around the 85 win mark. You know, this is a much more loaded team, even with the holes it does have. But, you know, as far as what it does to them as a franchise, you know, they believe that, you know, last year when they had all those injuries, that was not just luck. You know, the Yankees are a team where because they are, as you mentioned, an older team, they're going to have a significantly okay. higher number of injuries than most other teams are. You know, I, I tend to look at at health as a skill to some extent. You know, we're in a good, good example being a guy like Brian Roberts. He no longer has that skill. You know, you, you may get a good year after but you cannot count on that. And something you can almost think of as like a on-base ability skill, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, I think that they need good luck this time because they are probably going to have more than your average team's injuries. Now, the guys they brought on, you know, I don't think Ellsbury is injured prone. I really don't. You know, I discovered Red Sox. I was there when he got crushed by Adrian Beltran and broke his ribs. Yeah. That's not the kind of thing that I look at as a chronic injury, you know. Uh, I think, you know, McCann has proven generally he's able to stay in the lineup. Beltran is not a guy you're going to get 160 games out of, but I don't think he's going to be a guy who missed significant time either. You know, Tanaka has been a workhorse, obviously, through the early parts of his career. So, you know, they've replaced a lot of guys. Who were not on the field as much with guys who are on the field in general. Now, Cano obviously was a lock for 155-plus games every year, and, you know, nobody's saying not, losing a run Cano was not a huge blow for them. Of course it was. But, you know, I think that they're going to keep most of these guys on the field most of the year, um, and if they do that, they have, I think, a good chance of being very competitive in the a, at least, even it is even if it is a better division than it ever is. It does seem to be this year. So, you know, I think they're a team that's going to be in the mix for it. I think they're a team that's going to be fighting for a playoff spot, certainly for a wild card spot. Uh, and, you know, as we said earlier, they really need to because this is not a team that structurally can afford to miss the playoffs two years in a row with the level of payroll they put out.
0: All right, Daniel, it was great talking to you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, Pleasure to be here with you. All right, have a good season. All right, thanks, man. That was Daniel Barbarisi of the Wall Street Journal. You can read Daniel at WSJ.com or follow him on Twitter at Dan Barberici. That's it for this week's season previews. Next week we'll be discussing the Reds, Rangers, Braves, and Angels.